episode 133, Sacked. I'm assistant curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a May 18th, 2011 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. Do you know what's worth fighting for when it's not worth dying for? Belgium was stuck in a bad place during World War I. Invading German armies ate their food, and the Allied blockade prevented more from arriving. Luckily, Kansas farmers came to the rescue. Join Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin and me as we examine a set of embroidered flower sacks used to transport relief food from Kansas to Belgium. Did these flower sacks from mills in Kansas alter the course of World War I? Then, we go behind the scenes with a historic preservationist from the Kansas Historical Society. To commemorate the 150th anniversary of Kansas, the Historical Society recently launched an initiative to identify the state's earliest architecture. Find out if they really don't build them like they used to. Finally, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, we connect White, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author from Emporia, Kansas, to the Boston Marathon. Started in 1897, this marathon is one of the oldest and best-known human racing events in the world. Did White once attempt this gauntlet of human endurance, only to be forced out due to an untied shoelace? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, Sacked. Nothing's ever built to last. You're in ruins. Good afternoon, Rebecca. Hi, Merle. Today we are discussing several flower sacks. Once average cotton sacks, at some point these sacks were decorated with intricate embroidery and lace work and ribbons and all kinds of stuff. Some have colorful lettering and uh, others have uh, various types of, of trim and decoration. I mean, they're pretty impressive, but they originally started out as your standard flower sack. Mm-hmm. The sacks were decorated by Belgian women during World War I and sent to Kansas as a sign of gratitude. During World War I, the tiny country of Belgium experienced some uh, pretty serious challenges. Yeah, they were pretty much between a rock and a hard place. I mean, on, on the one hand, they were invaded by Germany, and Germany, as any conquering country uh, or conqueror would do, uh, they took charge of supplies and foodstuffs, and um, that wouldn't that would be a big problem for any other country. But Belgium, in particular, imported. 75% of its food. Mm-hmm. Like the, it does today. <clears throat> like it still does. So there you go. Germany took over the food. And on the other hand, you have a British blockade of the Belgian ports. So Belgium is incapable of importing any food, and the Germans are taking what they have. Literally, Belgians were starving in 1914. And um, 
the world kind of stepped in to try and, and keep them from starving. And these sacks are related to that. Mm-hmm. Belgians were starving, and uh, some rather obscure characters seem to have come to the rescue. Mm-hmm. Uh, people like Walter Stubbs, governor of Kansas, and Herbert Hoover, who would someday be president of the United States. In fact, in the 1930s, Hoover would become absolutely reviled yes. for the way that he handled the Depression. But it's interesting because during World War I, he was a hero. He was. During the Depression, he was ridiculed for helping the rich and not helping the little mm-hmm. guy. But during World War I, like, he was internationally recognized yes, he was. as a savior to all the little people in the war. We forget uh, that now. What exactly was Hoover's job during World War I? Because that's what made him famous. Yes, and that's really uh, allowed him to become president of the United States, his fame. Well, um, at the outbreak of the war, he was living in London, and he was quite wealthy. He was uh, an independent mining engineer which you know means he could, he went all over the place uh, all over the world and coordinated projects had a lot of money a lot of influence within his sphere and he was kind of interested in expanding into public service i mean and, and he was quite skilled at um, mining and, and logistics, logistics on a on a massive scale yeah, cuz he owned a mining company yeah which and a mining company with concerns all over the world hoover is observing what's going on in belgium as are all the other Europeans, you know, are very concerned about what's happening to the Belgians. And um, the interest was in organizing some sort of relief group because there wasn't anything on the massive scale that was needed. Hoover steps in and he takes over um, this new entity called the Commission for the Relief in Belgium, which is purely existed during World War I and at no other time. Mm -hmm. So the CRB? CRB. CRB, Mm -hmm. okay. Or commission, whatever (laughs) we want to call it. Um, But I think it went by the CRB. Uh, So what Hoover does is he, for four years, he runs a volunteer organization that that spans the Atlantic. And its mission is to save the starving people of Europe, specifically the Belgians. and it became a massive, massive concern. I mean, he, he even said after four years that if he'd known what he was going to go through, he probably would have never done it. Um, they ended up, the commission ended up raising about a billion dollars. Oh, wow. Uh, they um, got, oh, my Lord, it was like 600 million pounds of flour. Uh, they had their own fleet of ships. They had their own flag. And this was all volunteer. And he was doing this from London. He, all, he had diplomatic immunity at one time so he could travel into Belgium and um, back out without fear. Uh, well, I'm sure he was worried about his life, but, you know, theoretically he was safe. He also traveled across the Atlantic a lot. And, you know, this is in the time of um, the German U-boats. So right. he, they had to have their own flag on these commission ships so that they wouldn't get uh, torpedoed. In retrospect, he probably saved millions of people from starving in Europe during World War I. And um, the European people just... Um, they, they, for a long time, referred to certain things with Hoover as the adjective. I came across a reference to a little girl who talked about her first piece of white bread as being Hoover bread. <laughs> she said, even today, when, at the time of the interview, whenever somebody talks about white bread, a picture of Hoover popped into her mind. Oh, because incredible. he saved her family from start. Well, I mean, he and the results of many other volunteers. Um, but he, he coordinated the whole thing. So what you're saying is that Hoover established one of the first 
massive scaled NGOs or non-governmental organizations. Uh Yeah, yeah, it had never before been seen that that kind of there weren't celebrities throwing concerts to raise money for tsunami victims or anything like that. No internet in which you only had to click a couple of times to donate cash. I mean, he he had to really build a diverse organization that spanned both sides of the Atlantic. Kansas Governor Walter Stubbs became a serious advocate for Belgium as well. Why would a governor in Kansas be concerned about Belgium? I mean, everybody was, mm-hmm. but um, everybody was. But I mean, w- w- what's the connection with this Governor Stubbs mm-hmm. guy? Well, because Hoover had to get because it was a volunteer-run organization, and he had to rely on donations. He really, he really encouraged the states to take the lead in donations. So Stubbs, the Kansas governor, got involved with the Kansas committee that was created just to, to help the commission over in Bel- over in Europe. And um, coincidentally, at the same time, in Kansas, we had a bumper wheat crop. Mm-hmm. And we are the wheat state, you know, we, we like to call ourselves the breadbasket of the world. And uh, in 1914, we had a lot of wheat. Uh, and that meant that everybody was in a good mood. So um, what happened was Stubbs, the committee that he headed up, um, they raised so much funds and flour. They actually got bags of flour from mills in Kansas that that Kansas filled uh, the entire hold of a ship, Mm -hmm. a ship called Hannah, and it sailed across the Atlantic. It was Kansas's ship. It had a banner. It had the Kansas flag on it and everything. And that's really cool to think about that we filled a whole ship. In November 1914, several Kansas counties provided a massive shipment of flour to feed Belgium. And that's what you're talking Mm about, Um, the Hannah ship. Mm -hmm. Many consider this shipment to be essentially strategic, Mm -hmm. Um, strategic being in that it influenced the war. Um, um, Tell us about the journey of the Hannah ship and the reasonings for the cotton flour sack. I mean, bread, wheat, that's easy. It's, you make bread from it. But it didn't have to be shipped in, in flour sacks. Yeah. I mean, it could have been shipped in other ways, but there were specific reasons to use the cotton sacks. Yeah, well, um, cotton was cheaper than, than paper. I mean, that, that was one reason they shipped flour in sacks. They, they also shipped the raw flour. Uh, well, you can imagine, I mean, Europe is is decimated decimated by this war, any milling has to take place over here. Um, um, They landed, the ships landed in Rotterdam, um, just north of Belgium, and then the the flour sacks had to be transported into Belgium, uh, behind enemy lines, essentially, and made into food. Mm -hmm. Because if you made bread over in the United States, you can imagine, and put it in the hold of a ship, it would be, it's not going to last. So it had to be flour, and cotton sacks were what was available. Um, The cotton became really important after the flour was distributed because people were concerned that the Germans were going to take the cotton and use it. I think it was packing material that they used in their munitions Mm -hmm. companies. So the commission actually tracked the whereabouts of the cotton sacks. So the sacks got distributed in a very controlled way to orphanages and the professional schools that taught sewing and lace making and uh, embroidery in Belgium. Uh, you know, Belgian ladies were very well known for their needlework skills. Almost a year after the shipment, the flour sacks began to kind of return back to the commission, right, and eventually yes. make their way to Kansas. But they looked different, mm-hmm. clearly. Um, 
what's been done to these sacks? And can you describe to us a couple of your favorites? Because yeah. there's a collection, right? There's yeah. there's like uh, there's maybe ten to fifteen of these sacks. Yeah, right? in, in our collection, right. and they all came from the Kansas committee, the, the Kansas Committee for Relief in, in Belgium. So what our um, sacks look like is just uh, an amazing expression of, I guess you'd call it gratitude. I mean, there there are embroidered French words um, that say "Thank you, America," "God bless you." The ones that I personally like the best are the ones that have uh, detailed embroidery outlining printed um, logos that are on the sacks because these were coming from Kansas Mills, right? So they have the Mills logo or emblem on them. And the Belgian ladies actually outlined, um, let's say we have one that has a bell on it with sprays of wheat. So the, the wheat now is heavily embroidered and parts of the bell are embroidered. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, there's another one we have. Pawnee County, Kansas sent a thousand sacks of flour. Um, alone, just that county. We have 105 counties. Um, and that sack came back to us. They, they had cut up the sack and they separated um, the, the panels with handmade lace, wow. Belgian lace. And then they embroidered this these wonderful, heavily embroidered words all through the panels that, you know, talk about um, the, has the years and a remembrance of what uh, the Americans had done for them, how many sacks they sent. And then um, it's got the words orphanage, Hoselt, uh, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that name, but that's the orphanage that that sack went to and that they embroidered and sent back to us as an expression of thanks. All right, Rebecca, well, thanks for telling us about the flour sacks and the efforts of Kansans to relieve the plight of starving Belgians during World War I. You're welcome. Today's Kansas quiz is about what else? Flour. One of the United States' last independently owned flour mills is located in the tiny town of Hudson, Kansas. The sacks they use today are paper instead of cloth, but this mill's logo is all old-fashioned. It features a Jersey cow and the words Hudson Cream. That's a reference to the smooth white texture of the flour. Your challenge is to name the company that produces Hudson Cream flour. I'll be back in a moment with the answer. When Kansas became a state in 1861, there wasn't much to get excited about. A few tiny churches, some Indian missions, and wood stables at Fort Leavenworth. At least, that's what some think. Many are beginning to question that logic. Today, we go behind the scenes with Historic Preservation Survey Coordinator Amanda Lachlan to learn about the Society's recent efforts to discover early buildings in Kansas. In April, the Kansas Historical Society launched an initiative to identify Kansas buildings constructed prior to and and up to 1861. You are the coordinator of this initiative. Uh, Can you tell us why the Historical Society is concerned with buildings from this kind of pre-statehood period? Um, Well, since this is the sesquicentennial of Kansas's birth, um, as a state, we wanted to kind of gather information on what is still around from that time period. So we kind of thought we knew what was out there, but we weren't sure. So we wanted to get an idea of what was still around. What's what's your role in the initiative? I mean, you're the survey coordinator, but what exactly does that mean? Um, well, as coordinator suggests, I'm kind of the person who talks to the public. They give me the information. I relate that 
than to our consultants who we hired to do the actual survey work. So I'm kind of in the background going through our files, seeing if we've ever surveyed something or have any information on it, and then passing that along to our consultants. How does the how does the process work? Like um, you know, you said you have some consultants that do some background research. Um, you know, it's like say I live next door to kind of a crusty old garage made of limestone. <laughs> I think it's I think it's pretty early, but I don't know. Um, you know, like so I guess maybe I call you up and 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 ask you about this. How does it work? How's the process work? Well, there probably aren't any garages from 1861 or before. There could be, but... Um, All right, carriage house, okay, whatever you want well, to call yeah. it. Um, dog house, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so what you would do is, yeah, if you were interested in it, you could email me, send me pictures of it, um, give me a call, we can talk about it, and then um, just give me kind of a location where I could might be able to find it. If you say somewhere in Kansas, that could be anywhere. Mm-hmm. So I need a little bit of a pinpoint of, of to, to pass it on to our consultants, and then they'll kind of sift through and decide oh, yeah, that could potentially be something that we could survey for this project or maybe at a later date. Okay, so um, the Historical Society wants to document these early properties, but, like, what's the benefit for the owner? Like, what do they get out of it? And 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 related to that is, is it, are they going to get in trouble if I report my neighbor's stuff? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't, wanna, I don't want something <laughs> bad to, I don't want something that they don't like to happen. Like, what's the benefit for them and what's the ramifications, I guess? Well, um, this is kind of just a first step. So think of it more as like an information gathering. Um, It would be no different than calling and saying that your neighbor has a maple tree. Like, Mm -hmm. there's nothing harmful about that. So... Um, just to be clear, the eventual goal is to be on the National Register, and that's also not a not a bad no, thing. No, no, that's not a bad thing at all. Yeah, that was kind of what was going into the benefit portion <laughs> right. of it. But it... Um, there's a lot of people out there that that love the history. Like I got a call the other day from a, a family in Florence, Kansas, who has this great old house, and they're you know it's got all these different portions. There's a log portion and a stone portion, and they have documented all their history, and they want to potentially list it on the state or national register. And so this kind of is giving them a reason to report that, mm-hmm. and and maybe kind of help us go through the process of registering it. So there's the benefit of a gathering the information for the whole state to understand what out there and then for the, the local people, the people who own it, to then maybe pursue national and state register, which would then, of course, open it up for tax credits for them to restore and rehabilitate buildings. So, right. Once you get on the register, there's lots of benefits. Definitely. Um, uh, the initiative, this initiative is actually part of a bigger survey, um, and these surveys take place fairly frequently. I mean, we're doing one on, uh, you know, like territorial structures, but we've done them on a variety of different themes before. Um, this time, this, the state is surveying vernacular architecture. <laughs> what exactly does vernacular mean? And uh, how can I tell if my building is of interest to this particular survey? Um, okay, that's kind of a multi-question. Vernacular is kind of one of those ambiguous words that no one knows how to define. Um, we all have our own definitions of it. For this portion, um, up to 1861, vernacular is just including anything that's built at that time period. I mean, Grinter Place and the Shawnee Indian Missions, they're both National Register properties. They're kind of more what we would maybe call high style. Some I don't know that necessarily an architect designed them, but they have more of a design bent to mm-hmm. them, as opposed to just a stone house that someone erected, you know, as, as a claim house that they just wanted to live in. So, um, Usually vernacular means it's not a high style. It's not designed by an architect. It's just the common man 
or woman building something. Mm-hmm. That they, and his family. Building. Yeah, family. Yeah. <laughs> so they're just kind of getting together. But again, on this, it's just whatever is still there because we still we want to know what's what's around. Mm-hmm. So just put it on our radar. <laughs> Excellent. Um, you are an expert in historic preservation in Kansas. Um, I would assume that structures from pre-statehood are pretty rare. Like, like maybe there's only just a handful of them. Um, now that the survey is kind of underway, have you have you come across any surprising discoveries? Well, um, there's been a lot. Um, I know since Kansas, the way it's settled, we're, we're tending to see a lot, and we, we definitely think there'll be a lot more buildings in eastern part of Kansas. So everyone thinks of Lawrence and, you know, Douglas County. So Eudora, which is right around Lawrence, I always thought there would have been a lot of buildings there. But on our, our register, not our register, but our inventory online, um, we only had a couple buildings surveyed from that in any previous survey. So we've gotten some information from the local historical society there in indicating there's some buildings that may be territorial era. So that that was surprising to me that we mm-hmm. didn't have that information. Um, there was a house not too long ago that um, Matthew Holtkamp and I, he's up in the preservation department with me, we went and surveyed. It's a log house that was built, we think, 1865. It may be earlier. Wow. And it's just the the owners, just they've taken kind of care of it. You know, it's been on their property. It's never been moved. And it's got this great frame, like wood frame extension on it. That's, I mean, it's 18th or 19th century as well. And so we were able to kind of go and look at the history of that. And it's that kind of stuff that we didn't know about before. Where's that at? It was in Tonganoxie. That's amazing. Like, I could see, okay, yeah, stone structures have survived since yeah. 1860, but yeah. a timber log yeah, structure? Yeah, it's a log structure. And and there's a lot, too. We That's one thing. We're assuming that a lot of them would be brick and stone, but there are some frame and wood buildings that are still around that um, would be really interesting to know. Um, there was one building that we've actually since registered, uh, put on the National Register. It's called the Shaft House. It's in Chase County. And it was the first portion of it was built in 1857, I think, when the, the family moved here, the Shaft family. They had about 10 kids. It was a husband and wife. They came from Michigan. Uh-huh. He dies in 1858. I mean, she, this woman's got like, you know, a castle kids. of kids. And she's like, let's just go back to Michigan. And the family decides to stay. They convince her to stay. And then about 10 years later, the sons built her a portion, another portion on the house, and her oh. name is actually carved in the stone on the house. So it says Jane the mother's Shaft. Name? Yeah, which is really unusual that a woman would get some credit for that. But That's I mean, that, that she was one of the founders of, of that area. So that family was pretty influential. So it's those kinds of stories. I mean, that's Kansas. Mm-hmm. That, those are Kansans. And right. that's the kind of stuff we want to document. Right. That's excellent. All right, Amanda. Well, thanks for telling us about the uh, architectural survey. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I'm Rebecca Martin with the answer to today's Kansas quiz. What is the name of the Kansas company that produces Hudson Cream Flour? The answer is Stafford County Flour Mills. Its flour is made the old-fashioned way using a short patent process that grinds and sifts the wheat more often than standard mills. The result is a smooth, creamy flour prized by bakers all over the country. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. And Museum Specialist Sarah Price. Hello. Today, we connect William Allen White, a small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to the Boston Marathon, the most 
recognized human road racing event in the world. Sarah, you want to give us a little background on the mother of all marathons? Sure. The 26.2-mile Boston Marathon is an annual race hosted by the city of Boston. Inspired by the marathon run in the first modern Olympics of 1896, the first Boston Marathon was run in 1897 with just 18 participants. It's a little different than today. Yeah, people like are thousands. fighting to get into Over 20,000, I think. <laughs> it's the world's o- oldest marath- annual marathon. Until 1972, women were not permitted to officially enter the race. However, Roberta Gibb is recognized as the first woman to run the entire Boston Marathon in 1966. In 1967, Catherine Switzer became the first woman to run with a race number after she registered with just her initials. She finished the race despite a judge attempting to tear off her number. That's fun. (laughs) Well, that seems inappropriate. (laughs) Today, the marathon is open to anyone over the age of 18. Runners must first qualify by completing a certified standard marathon course. About one-fifth of the marathon's spots are reserved for non-qualifying participants, including charities. The course leads through winding roads over the infamous Heartbreak Hill and ends in the center of Boston. In 2011, Jeffrey Mutai of (laughs) of Kenya (laughs) set a record with a time of two hours, three minutes, and two seconds. I know how he did that. For 26 miles. (laughs) That's insane. About 500,000 Bostonians come out to view the event, including students from Wellesley College, who uphold a tradition of cheering the runners at the 13th mile by forming a scream tunnel. (laughs) That sounds like fun. (laughs) For many, the Boston Marathon is more than just a prestigious race. Runners are often sponsored by businesses or personal sponsors, with all the proceeds going to charity, and recently they've raised over $11 million. Nice. Oh, not bad. All right. Thank you, Sarah. Now to our game. As a contestant, Sarah, you will hear two chains of connection between William Alawite and the Boston Marathon. You must pick the true Six Degrees of William Alawite from the false. Nikayla, you want to go first? Uh, sure. Okay, so the Boston Marathon, as Sarah said, is run every year on Patriots Day, which is the third Monday of April. Patriots Day commemorates the anniversaries of the Battles of Lexington and Concord, which were the first battles of the American Revolution and were fought on April 19, 1775. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know these battles most probably because of poems like Longfellow's Paul Revere's Ride and Ralph Waldo Emerson's Concord Hymn. Well, reportedly present at the Battle of Concord was a man named Josiah Keith. And Josiah Keith... Oh, you're going way old school. Way old school. Josiah Keith was the great-great-grandfather of William Allen White. Wow. Yeah. So, (laughs) Revolutionary War hero. (laughs) All right. that, Now me. In 1902, a young New Yorker named Sammy Meller won the sixth annual Boston Marathon. A few months later, Meller competed in the Pan American Games in Buffalo, New York. It was a big World's Fair. Um... As a Boston Marathon winner, Meller was considered a celebrity and invited to attend an open, opening gala where he was introduced to the like, uh, likes of Nikola Tesla, William, M- President William McKinley, but more importantly, William Allen White. Meller and White developed a close friendship, and White periodically wrote about Meller's athletic exploits. Meller briefly referenced White in his 1942 memoir, stating that prior to competing in the 1904 St. Louis Games, White actually offered to be Meller's pacer for training purposes. 
Meller graciously declined. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> it's kind of thoughtful. So, which one is the real six degrees and which one is the false? Oh, I don't know. They're both great stories. Um, <laughs> really? And very believable. <laughs> uh, I think I'm going to have to go with Michaela's answer. That is correct. Mine yeah. is false. Yeah. Well, I can't imagine William Allen White writing about any any athletic exploits because he hated sports. <laughs> right. He wasn't really an athlete. And he certainly, I'm sure, at no point in his life offered to be any the pacer for any long-distance runner. Oh, that'd be really How pathetic. <laughs> the worst pacer ever. <laughs> All right. Uh, Nikayla, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode? Absolutely. For our next episode, we attempt to connect William Allen White to American Samoa. Discovered by a Dutchman, settled by the English, and attacked by the Germans, this tiny island is now an American territory. And it has all the weird trappings of a territory. Excellent. So come back in two weeks when we connect White to um, to the American Samoa. Did White once consider pursuing a wrestling career among Samoa's historically elite sumo wrestlers? He just gave it away. Oh, <laughs> Find out in two weeks. Did you try to live on your concludes episode 133, Sacked. If you would like to see images of these phenomenal embroidered flower sacks, go to our website, kshs.org, or check out Kansas Memory, our digital online repository. If you think you know a really old building in Kansas, go to the Society's Historic Resource Inventory at www.kshs.org backslash khri. There, you can find out about historic structures in your neighborhood, or better yet, become a preservationist and learn how to contribute to the Territorial Survey. In the next episode, Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and I examine cloth fragments torn from the pants of the infamous Dalton Gang. Everyone wanted a piece of these notorious criminals. Many got their wish when their dead bodies were stripped after a failed bank robbery in a Kansas town. Find out how the people of Coffeeville, Kansas, dole out justice to thieves with poor fashion sense. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Give us the fire.